had a pretty brief topic tonight, but I think it'll be helpful for all. We'll be uh, starting out in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter number 24. <clears throat> we'll be speaking of something I speak a lot of hope while I'm up here, and it's semi-related to that topic as we move forward here. And who knows what is in Luke chapter 24. I know we're all tired. I'm just asking for a little bit here. You can say words. That's an acceptable answer. <laughs> Yes, the resurrection is in chapter 24. So, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about hope is the differentiation, if you will, which is probably not a real word, but we're going to use it, of what we have against what is in the world today. Because you can pit everything against what we believe uh, religion-wise and find just merely one difference, really, and that is the resurrection of Christ. In religion today, you see a lot of a prophet, or more specifically, the death of a prophet as both tragic and historic and the basis of everything they go off of. Everything this prophet did in life is what we focus on. It's not something we, fo- we don't focus on um, what happened when they died or how they died. or they, they just focus on one aspect of their life and then they died. And that really is where the religion ends and quits developing, if you will, and it just goes on from there. They follow blindly the teachings of one man while he yet lived. So it's the driving force of their religion is what he did and how he died. Even in Catholicism, if you look at that, as they put up, you know, Mary a lot, they do they mention a lot about Christ in their religion. But you have to notice, even in that, Jesus stays dead. And that's what they focus on. So, the one thing that's extremely different about this is the resurrection. Which brings me to my main point tonight, if you'll follow along with me, is that we also are resurrected. We also are resurrected with Him. So, when you think about all these religions against which you believe... Why does that stand out? It stands out because there is no other hope out there or foundational force outside of the resurrection of Christ. Read with me. I'm going to give you just a brief. We're not going to read the whole story because everyone's tired. But this is the resurrection that happens in the first part of this chapter. And then following in verse 13 on is where he meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he walks through, and they're really sad. And of course, his eyes their eyes, it says, are covered in this chapter. And Jesus comes up to them and says, Hey guys, what you talking about? And they say, Well, haven't you heard? And, he, and him just said, Heard what? And of course, they are then absolutely shocked that, they, that this guy must be some sort of stranger that he hasn't heard of what's happened. Not just the death of Christ, or Jesus as they knew him, but that they didn't hear his life leading up to his death. I think that almost, it notes in there, is more surprising to them that they didn't hear about Jesus himself 
this guy named Jesus. They're like, haven't you heard about this guy? Because he did all this. And then they killed him. And we really thought he was this guy. So we start in verses uh, Luke 24, verse 25. And it said, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And it says in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice here that Jesus didn't start at the beginning with Moses. And what is Moses most popularly related to? When you say Moses, the next thing that comes along is... Parting the Red Sea. We're going to roll with that. But the book of Exodus, think of that. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, what are those? Books of the law. So when you say Moses, a lot of people associate Ten Commandments. They associate the law. They associate... Uh, all the terrible things that happened because Moses brought the law, where he broke the tablets, had to go back, chip them out himself, the hard, the waver. And everyone would feel like maybe that he would go back and explain all that, but it doesn't say that he explained Moses and the law. Why do you think that is? It's because these people were Jews and they knew the law. The last thing they needed to explain to them after years of school was the law. In fact, this is merely why I believe that they were blinded to the fact that everything that happened up to and including the death of Christ was the fulfillment of the law. Because they didn't look to Jesus to fulfill the law, but rather to simply follow the law. So he, they didn't, he didn't need to expound to them Moses and the law. He had to expound to them Moses and the prophets concerning him, which is him fulfilling the law. Why? Because you cannot simply understand the resurrection without first understanding how all of that correlates to Jesus. Why is the resurrection significant? Because you cannot stop at merely the satisfaction of the law of God. That's only the beginning. The second is the not the overturning but rather the completion of it in his resurrection so what's special about the resurrection is that we are not just called to follow Christ but that we are called to live a resurrected life this is kind of a subject that a lot of people like to avoid but when you of course die to yourself you then just don't live a dead life, correct? Right, exactly. Correct. Because we are resurrected with Christ. So there's a couple things we have to recognize in the process of time, the process of salvation, when getting to know God, is what is the first thing you need to understand? That you cannot be resurrected without first being what? Dead. So the first thing that people like to teach people is the Ten Commandments. We teach our kids the Ten Commandments. We teach our kids the books of the law. We teach them the miracles. We teach them who Jesus is. But then we almost kind of stop there and just show them who Jesus is and hope they follow Him. There are a lot of people out there that follow the teachings of Jesus. There's a lot of people on the road to Emmaus that are just simply following the teachings that they have had all of their life. And because of that, they're fine with where they're at 
understanding the teachings that they, or even worse, living with the understanding of what they've been taught and that being enough. The disciples on the road to Emmaus knew the law. Jesus didn't have to tell them that. He did go back to the beginning because understanding the law and understanding how Christ fulfilled it is two completely separate things. I can teach White Miller the law to the letter and he can follow it without understanding how Christ fulfilled it. We'll get into more of this later, but just keep it in your mind that these people knew the law. They knew the teachings. They knew. They even thought they knew who Jesus was because of it. A lot of people follow Jesus because they're like, this is the guy that's going to free us from the Roman Empire because of the way they interpreted the prophets and the way it was taught to them. The Pharisees even believed that he would overthrow the law. And who taught those schools? The Pharisees. So their understanding was quite warped. However, they had an understanding. What they didn't understand is that the law in its power killed them. The power of sin is the law because there is no sin except for under the law, correct? Because the law is your schoolmaster that leads you to what? Jesus Christ. The law is your schoolmaster because it shows you how hopeless you are. It shows you how absolutely turned around you are in your thinking and how much, how much you fail in a day. We don't have to be reminded how much we fail. The law will do that for us. I don't need Seth to tell me how much I fail every day. Or Matt. Or Dakota. Or anybody to tell me how much I fail every day. The law does that for me. And because we know the law, we know our failures. But it seems like we take those and we excuse them because of grace when really the first step to understanding any of this is to understand that we are dead in our sins. Why are you dead in your sins? Because there's nothing you can do inside of that realm that can make you any better. So the first thing to understand is that you are dead. And that goes right along with the meaning of resurrected, which means raised from the dead. That is the only definition of resurrected. It's to be raised from the dead. This is why it's such a particular word we need to keep. The first thing you have to realize is that we're dead and why we are. So, what does it mean to be dead? No life. Not living. You are unable... Okay, I'll just throw this at you. Think about the tomb of Lazarus. What was it that Lazarus was able to do? Himself, before Christ. Just be dead. He was unable to even wrap himself for burial, Correct? Some people may argue that, but I'm not going to. You can't wrap yourself when you're dead. When you're dead, you don't care about much. Your body, anyway. You are unable to do anything yourself. But who wants to admit that? You see, to realize that you're dead, you need to realize this stuff. That number one, you, you're unable to do anything by yourself. You are completely helpless and at the mercy of whoever comes along to do whatever at that point. So when you're dead and these wonderful people come along to take care of your body because obviously you can't do anything yourself, 
What's one of the first things that they did back in those days when they were dead? They would wrap them. There was very little procedure for draining the body or anything like we have now. So they would, I hate to put it this way, but it was almost like a dry rub, and then they'd wrap them up. You didn't know if you were being buried or barbecued. So, using this illustration, you're unable to do anything yourself and you are completely bound. Completely bound. In what? Whatever somebody else does to you. So this idea of being freer that they want to sell to you completely goes away. Because again, who did that to you? Somebody else. You had no choice. Nor do you have a choice. Why? Point one, you're unable to do anything. So whether you're being buried or barbecued, there ain't no way. But number three, you think you'd be bothered by being bound. You'd be bothered by not being able to do anything yourself. But why do you think that doesn't bother you? Because you are completely unaware of your situation. Because you are dead. So to be resurrected only sounds miraculous until it's just a word you use. But until you realize that's something we must admit in order to start being a Christian, it is completely different. Because you, sir, before you were saved, were dead. Unable to do anything yourself. Wrapped up by whatever somebody wanted to do to you. And you were number three. Even though you were wrapped up, you were dead. Unable to do anything. No free will... You are completely unaware of the situation. And you are, quote, fine with whatever happens. Most people don't wake up because they're unaware and they're bound. They have no idea. But really, the first step to being a Christian is simply admitting to yourself, I'm dead. The feeling of being dead is a very crushing feeling. Even worse, it's a very condemning feeling feeling because in this world what's taught about death besides the glorification of it I dare say it's glorified because it is one of the only things in this world that offers finality it's one of the things they can be certain on is that if you die you are in fact dead and there is no reversing it it is hopeless I say all that to say this, when you admit that you are in fact dead in your trespasses and sin, that you realize the hopelessness of your situation. I offer one more question before I move on. What can you do about being dead? We can't even make ourselves taller, and believe me, I think I would if I could. We can't even do that with our thoughts, so who's to say that we can do what scientists are claiming and even preserve ourselves to prolong life. It says in Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Did we quicken us? Nowhere in the Bible will you find where man did anything for a dead person. 
besides what was previously discussed. So now what? You've admitted you're dead, you're hopeless, and you realize it's your own sin and trespass that's done it to you. This is actually, since the fall of man, man's lot in life to be dead in his trespass and sins, generally by his own choosing. God decided to do something about this. And when He went through all the things in the Scriptures concerning Himself, it was not only to give context to His resurrection, but rather to give context to the uh, society in which they were in that was consumed in the law and that they killed him for no reason. Number two is you must be called out of the darkness of death. Everyone in this room when I asked that question about what you can do answered nothing. And it's true. There is nothing you can do about being dead. Lucas today, and this was a very timely example, I took them all out to lunch and we went to that wonderful gourmet cafe of McDonald's. Because that's where you go when you want to eat cheap. It was the nice one, so we went in, sat down, we ate. Well, coming out, it has that two-lane drive-through, a little piece of road, and then parking spaces. I was an unfortunate father and parked in those parking spaces with four kids. So, going in was fine, but coming out, they were toting their drinks and their little boxes of uh, Happy Meals and whatever else they had left, whatever scraps they decided they wanted to keep around. And out of the bottom of these wonderfully constructed boxes comes a ketchup packet. Right as we get across the drive through lanes, right in the smack middle of the, what I call the fast lane at McDonald's. Because you ain't going through the drive through you're just looking for a parking spot. Lucas, of course, trailing behind. The girl's got my pockets and I have the baby in my arms. And Lucas just stops because of this ketchup packet. It's like he can't see anything, bless his heart. But a ketchup packet falls and there it is. And he stops in the middle of the road. And I get two steps because I'm almost to the car. And I say, what? And I turn around. There he is trying to pick up a ketchup packet with his boots because his hands are full. I do get a little testy at this point and say, Lucas, get out of the road! What are you doing? Because I've got my hands full with a baby and two other kids. Well, he gets a little testy at me and just comes to the car running and he's a little fussy at this point. And so I calm down and realize that he thinks I'm seriously upset at him. There's a point to this. So he gets in the car and I say, Lucas, I can replace a ketchup packet, but I can't replace a Lucas. I said, he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, that's the fast lane. You're going to get hit by a car and die. To which he replies, but then I'll be in heaven and you can just meet me there later. <laughs> Slightly a proud daddy moment, but at the same time, I'm like, but I don't want you in heaven. God gave you to me to protect you, so sit down and buckle up, please. All that to say this, death is final. And while he's okay with going to heaven to meet me later, humans as themselves are not okay with death. And there is no coming back from it. 
There's nothing I could have done should Lucas become a pancake in McDonald's parking lot. Because there's nothing man can do. Just like the souls of man cannot be aroused by another man. My futile cries over Lucas's body had that have happened would have done absolutely nothing to jumpstart his organs or give his lungs oxygen. Just like the fierce tugging, punching, pulling, whatever you want to call it spiritually, to get somebody to come to God. That soul can only be aroused by one thing, and that is the voice of the, man, of the one who created it. You must be called by the Savior out of the darkness of death. God is the giver of life and death, and God saw your condition and chose you. We do a lot to credit people for what it took to bring us to salvation, but what we ought to do is credit how God's voice was heard through their life. We kind of confuse it. We say, if it wasn't for that man, I would not be saved. I'm not saying that that's terribly wrong. I think you should be grateful to those who are a good example of God in your life, but you ought not credit them with your salvation. That is not your own to start with. He chose to make you whole and new again. And we have to remember this because God chose a lot of things to make this happen. One, God chose to make a way for life while we were yet sinners. In that same example, Lucas, when he was trying to attempt to pick up the ketchup packet with what I assume was his toes through his boots, there was absolutely no convincing him that that ketchup packet did not need saving. When I finally got him over to the car, he said, but the ketchup packet is going to be squished. I credit him for not wanting to litter. I do. But where was his eyes at that point? down at that ketchup packet and not aware of the danger around him. What changed his view off that ketchup packet? The voice of his father. God has to holler at us and call us to get us to even look at him. Otherwise, we're focused on doing something else, saving something else, something else that is seemingly more important than where we need to be looking. And believe me, as human beings, I do believe that the example of a ketchup packet would be just perfect because it seems absolutely pointless. He probably would have never ate the ketchup packet to start with. But he was very concerned about it. But the voice of the father snapped his eyes up and realized that if you don't come here, you're going to be dead. You're going to continue in the condition you are in, which brings you nothing but destruction. So, He chose to make a way for you. Not only did He choose to make a way for you, but He chose to make you aware of your situation. When I hollered at Him and I said, cars are everywhere and one of them is going to hit you. That's when he realized that he better take about three steps forward. Not out of fear, but out of understanding of what is to come. 
we do the same thing. When God calls to us, we are made fully aware, just like we talked about in the previous point, where we have no idea what's going on. Anyone does anything they want to us. We are now aware of what is happening to us. We are aware of our condition. We are aware of what we don't have in our life and what we were made for in our life. And all that because God chose to call all men. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Notice that He didn't add a great clarifying word to darkness, but chose to glorify rather the marvelous light. Not just light, marvelous light. Because as His focus is on how great God is, our focus should not be on how wonderful, or not wonderful rather, but how great and powerful the darkness is. Because there is no power outside the voice of God. A lot of times in the Bible, even with the devil, it says, and God gave the devil power to do such and such. Which indicates what? The devil's power is limited by who? God. So, when we talk about just how great the darkness in this world is, we should not discount how dark the world is. But at the same time, we should not discount how powerful the voice of God is. And just like we see people out there focusing on a ketchup packet and we don't know what's wrong with them when God is drawing all men to Himself, sometimes, like Lucas, it takes a couple seconds to register that something more is calling Him than a ketchup packet. It's not our job to be impatient with people, smack around, say, look over there, it's right over there, it's right there. In fact, the more you say it to a kid, particularly like that, what do they do? Oh, I just don't see it. And you walk over and you point, and it's right in front of them. It's because you were frustrated, so they couldn't see what you were pointing at. You were hasty, so they couldn't understand where you were getting at. They misunderstood you completely. God chooses to call all men Himself because He recognizes man's inability to be patient with other men. God's call to all men is not to do better. It's not to live a perfect life. Not the call we're talking about. When Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, what did He say? Three words. Lazarus, come forth. And then did He? He did come forth. And something that's worth noting is it even notes that he was still bound. He came back to life, but he didn't take time to sit up, untie himself, brush himself off, because you know he was still crusty from that dry rub. He didn't take all that time. He simply came to Christ and was unbound right in the presence of Christ. To tell somebody 
that they had to do X, Y, Z before they can come to Christ is a little backwards. The spirit is broken when you realize and tell yourself that you're dead. You've done a lot of preparation just in realizing that there is nothing you can do. But then you need to find the one who can do something about it. So what is God, that call we're talking about, what is that a call to? What does God call you to out of your sin and out of darkness? What is He calling you to? Exactly. God is calling you to life. Which is the complete opposite of what where we started, which was admitting that you're what? Dead. Everyone likes to note that God has a lot of opposites. But I don't believe it's God who has opposites. I believe it's man that has created the opposite of God in his rebellion. Death was brought upon all men by, by who? The sin of man. But life can be restored by relationship with God. So when God calls you, what's He calling you to? He's calling you to life. It's not simply something that uh, He calls you to straighten up or to be better than the world. He doesn't call you to uh, sit in a church on a hot Wednesday night and just simply sweat here for a little bit to do your due diligence. He calls you to a life. But see, life is misunderstood. Life isn't what we're doing. Life isn't living. Life is a purpose. And when you're dead, everyone else binds you in their purpose. And what they tell you is good for your life, including the most popular follow your heart syndrome. By follow your heart, they mean follow whatever we tell you. And this is what they do. They, bind, they shake down the rub and they put the binding on. That's what you're going to do. And then eventually you find out it doesn't work and you break and you have no idea what you're doing so you have to find a new dream. And you can't keep following the opinions of others and live a life. It's just like these mothers even that live their life through their daughters. They bind them up in their dream and their thoughts and their idea of the perfect life. God calls you to life which is in Christ. You know what you find in Christ? You find rest, peace, life. Even more, you find identity. The greatest identity crisis you'll have is what everybody else wants you to do. Sometimes that song that he's saying about standing alone simply means to not find your identity in what other people give you to identify with. But instead identify with Christ. Your identity is not found in the clothes you wear. It's not found in the church you're in. It's not found with the man or woman, depending on your gender, you are with. A lot of people feel that they have no identity outside of a relationship. They find stability in a relationship and that's what their identity is and that is totally untrue. If I had to find my identity in Elizabeth, then it just would not work. We are very different individuals. 
But because we both have an identity in Christ, the marriage will work. Just think about this. If we all find an identity in Christ, how is the church not going to work? One mind, one accord. That's why it worked in Antioch and why it worked with all these revivals because they weren't looking for a church or a person or a movement to identify with. They were looking for Christ and they found Him because God calls you to life. He calls you to Himself. He draws all men unto a church, right? Wrong. He draws them unto Himself. Everyone that nodded mindlessly, I know where you're at now. God has called you unto Himself. And not just to glorify Himself, but to fully establish you in what you were created for. And that is life with Him. God called you to more than just good works. There are a lot of churches out there that can help build you in good works. A lot of people that that can establish you in, just like they had, the law of God. You can be established and buried in the law of God and not understand who God is. You can find identity in the law. You can't. In the do's and don'ts of Christianity, if you will, you can find your identity there, but it is an empty... Again, this is why a lot of people leave, is because eventually that binding gets tiresome, cumbersome, and breaks. And what's one of the things that Jesus said about Himself? His yoke is what? And His burden is what? So why is everyone falling away under the heavy hand of what they should and shouldn't do? It's because they don't have God. Those things establish themselves under the love and care of God. He called you out of the darkness into life. He resurrected your soul. Why? Not so you could go out and show everybody these marvelous works but so you can go and show everybody the marvelous light. He called you to a glorious future found in the character and the mind of Christ. So to be resurrected is a glorious thing. But it's not something that you can just claim. Resurrection is what? To raise you from the dead, correct? To hear the call of God. He could say to any of us, Your name here, come forth. And we come forward, and the bonds are loosed, and the light is there again, and there we are. When Lazarus came out, where was he? In the presence of Jesus. Just as we ought to be in the presence of Jesus when we are called out of the darkness to life. We cannot simply be called to good works. We cannot simply be called to live a certain way. And if that's the way you feel that your religion is, then that's not God. He called you out the grave as He did Lazarus for the simple purpose of showing His glory to all, but with the newness of life to which you were called to be even more. To show His love that He thought of you. To show His mercy which appealed to you and to show His grace which saved you. 
Are you resurrected or simply living a dead life? You can be in church and raised in church all your life and be living a dead life. You can teach your kids how to live a dead life. And one day, when you crack under that pressure, you may blast them away from God entirely. Because dead people start stinking eventually. How can you know the love of God if you first don't if you're first not resurrected to see and to hear and to smell and to feel? Something that's manipulated greatly in our world today is emotions. There was a lot of my raising that didn't involve emotions at all. In fact, they were something you did not do. So, I got to thinking about that a lot. And it's like you were, I was being raised as a soldier where you know this, you did X, Y, Z and this is what you did. And you did this around this person and when you were here you acted this way. And I was taught a lot about how to act and what to do. But very little about how to feel. You can equip your kids on how to measure stuff in their mind. Actions, people. You can go on and on. Actions, people, uh, stuff to do, stuff not to do. You can give them that measure. But you can't teach them how to feel. Dead people don't feel. Live people feel. Because emotions were created by God. The Bible even says to be angry and sin not. Indicating that anger in and of itself is not sinful. It is the free will action that goes along with the anger that is sinful. So in these gifts we have, again, man can manipulate and make to be evil. Anger and free will are gifts of, are gifts because they are of God. But they can be used to be evil. But to those that are not resurrected, they are both confusing and mostly used inappropriately. To be resurrected is to understand those things and to use those things for the glory of God, to show His light, to show His grace, to show His mercy. What is mercy if not be angry and sin not? when everyone else on this world is angry and sins a lot. A careful consideration of why you're angry and how you choose to express it is evidence of your resurrection. and can be evidence of the mercy of God in your own life. Proof is found in the Spirit and love of God in your life, more than your actions even. You don't search for His Spirit in all the huge words or great wisdoms, but rather you listen for His call as they looked for it in the earthquake and they looked for it in the great wind and they looked for it in the hurricane, but rather, where did He find the still small voice? Or He find God, rather, in the still small voice. God's resurrection is one of the greatest blessings in your life. It's one of the pivotal moments in your life as the 
choice to follow Him or not to follow Him. Because life is there. Life is offered. But it's your choice whether to take it. Have you taken eternal life tonight? Because this resurrection, much like Jesus, who was resurrected for us, He never died again, correct? He was resurrected and called up in the clouds. Your spirit's the same way. When your spirit is resurrected, it will never die again. Because you've accepted the internal, eternal life. If your body goes in the ground, or barbecued, whichever you prefer, your spirit will never die again. The resurrection of Christ is more than simply a miracle. It is an illustration of the life of a Christian. We are to be like Christ except in the resurrection, evidently. That's just our hope, correct? Our hope is not only that He rose again and went to heaven to prepare a place for us, but rather that He rose and chose to resurrect our souls as well. Chose to offer the resurrection to all. Because eternal life can only be given if what first happens? You are dead. Understanding the gospel and understanding the resurrection is first found at the resurrection and understanding what it truly is. Are you dead tonight? Are you living a dead life tonight? Do you just look at your life and feel the emptiness of what you're doing? Or even worse, feel what you're doing is simply futile because it changes nothing. God's call goes out to you. God's word goes out to you. God's rules will do little to save you. Because God's law is, to, is condemning, correct? How else would we know that we're completely hopeless? Because we'll never live up to the standard. Well, trying to live that standard doesn't do a thing for you if you don't have God first. Because who can live up to God's standard? You can't be Christ-like without first following in the footsteps of Christ and being resurrected in your heart and soul. And it's the greatest mistake of evangelical Christians today to think that you can. That you can raise Christians. You can't raise Christians. You can have a godly home and not raise a Christian. Because it's not our job to raise them. It's God's call and their obligation to respond to it. To be raised from the dead. Resurrected. So all those who have problems understanding why this person's home is such a wreck is because maybe they took their job too seriously and tried to force God on their kids. If you have God and your soul's resurrected, that's who's going to reign supreme in your home. It doesn't matter who you are. But you won't cram it down anybody's throat. Because God's grace is shown to all. Particularly through your life. It's their choice whether to take it. We can't be disappointed in ourselves, if you will, because we didn't raise a good enough Christian. That's prideful. Our life is not a boot camp. And you won't win.
But you'll have a better chance if you just follow God and let God have His leading in your home and in your life. And the same goes for every kid here. If God's calling to you, don't wait. And don't think your raisin's going to save you. Because it won't. You can do an immaculate job and they look perfect and still won't save you. To know God is the best thing you'll ever find, but the first thing you must do is understand that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Respond to God's call and let Him resurrect your soul. And the fellowship you have, one with another, that are resurrected as well, is second to none. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank You for this evening. And Lord, I thank You for the Word. And Lord, I thank You for Your resurrection. Even more, I thank You for the call to all men to be resurrected with You. Lord, the light in my soul cannot be duplicated by anything man has to offer. And that's something you just can't describe to anyone without it. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that's feeling the call in their own heart, Lord, I ask You help them recognize your law for what it is and as to pin down how dead we are how hopeless we are and how without God that we are trying to do things in our own power or in somebody else's power Lord I ask you to help us throughout the week that we would ponder this and understand in our hearts the miraculous work that you can do through us that we may show your grace and mercy to others and be a light in the darkness we have. Lord, that there is just simply darkness, but there is more than that in the marvelous light. Lord, thank you for this evening. and get us home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.